Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, major political developments in Ottawa as Andrew Scheer announces he's resigning as Conservative Party leader. How did it get to that point and where does the party go from here? Also, the president of the National Coalition of Chiefs says First Nations partnerships on resource development are the most direct and effective way of addressing on-reserve poverty. Plus, a new study looks at how Canada can effectively address the issue of asylum-seeking border crossers. This party, this movement, needs someone who can give 100% to the efforts. And after some conversations with my kids, my, my loved ones, I felt it was time to put my family first. Look, if it was November 12th and not December 12th, I might be more inclined to, to believe that. It, it seems like it's stretching credulity here. Right? Given that Andrew Scheer had made it clear that he was running to be prime minister, given that Andrew Scheer made it clear after the election that he wasn't going anywhere, he was sticking around, he was going to lead the party into the next election, to now all of a sudden say, ah, oh, this isn't really working out for me and my family... I find it hard to believe. I, I don't doubt. And, and let's be clear, right? I, I don't doubt that for anybody who gets into politics, let alone leads a political party, that there is a tremendous uh, amount of pressure uh, on, on your personal life. And it can be really difficult uh, on your family situation. I don't doubt that at all. But I don't think that this uh, suddenly came to, to Andrew Scheer. So obviously we've been hearing today about some concern within the party. Uh, over some uh, resources provided to Andrew Scheer to to assist him in moving to Ottawa, but also to help cover the cost of his kids' private schooling in Ottawa. That some in the party were uh, surprised and upset to learn about this. So Andrew Scheer goes out, I don't think, on his own terms and under a bit of a cloud here. So how do we get to this point? Where, where does the party go from here? Ultimately, that's really the question now going forward. There's an opportunity for the conservatives, I think, going forward. But joining us for some thoughts is Elise Mills, uh, conservative political analyst, senior associate with Sussex Strategy Group. Elise, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, So, I mean, I I don't know. Were you you surprised by this today? No, um, I was assured that we wouldn't be going to all the way to the convention in April with Andrew Scheer as the leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard that from very, very good sources who themselves had spoken to Andrew. I think the original plan was to have a graceful exit strategy for him, or at least I think that's what they thought they had firmly agreed to. Um, And I had thought it would happen probably the first week of January. It felt like an appropriate time. But then again, that would put into question what we were going to be doing at a convention in April, right? right. Um, but I think that the news about the the money that was coming from the Conservative Fund was the straw that broke the camel's back. And as you know, Rob, you know, leaders don't go down on one cut. It's death by a thousand cuts. And I think this spoke to the frustration uh, by many, I would say, top-level conservatives that felt frustrated, felt not heard, uh, were waiting for him to kick it into high gear. That just never happened. And I think this was the, the final straw that broke the camel's back. Right. So do you think that this was maybe maybe leaked? I don't know if leaked is the right word, but that, that once people heard about it, they were going to use this, that this was going to be the, the final push to get him out of there. 
Well, it's very odd because I'm thinking about the different groups that were wanting Andrew to leave, that were very public about Andrew leaving. Right. And then I'm thinking about the members, the very powerful members of the Conservative Fund. The Conservative Fund is a place that you never want to mess with. Right. It's, it's, those, those people are, are, are very serious and very powerful. But they don't always make good bedfellows with the people that have been calling out for Andrew's uh, resignation, who have been, I think, very aggressive in doing that. So it would be interesting to me to see in a diagram how those two or three mm, or yeah. four groups connected. Uh, but, you know, you know, Rob, it only takes one person to connect with another for that to be released. I think what it does tell me, though, if they had settled up with each other, it tells me the level of frustration that they had given him what they thought was a a, a long enough runway um, and then uh, it, he had probably not shown enough activity moving towards that final end date and this probably was like I said the the last straw and they I think it was used or it was used to facilitate the movement of Andrew Shear out of the office right from your perspective is that what needed to happen is this what the Conservative Party needs well I mean it, it's very funny because I think there's a lot of us in the West uh, Western conservatives that feel blamed mm -hmm. uh, for Andrew Scheer and not winning that federal election. Um, and I think we feel it by certain Tories out of Toronto. Um, and for me, what my response has been to the Toronto, certain members of our Toronto Tory set is that what you don't understand is from British Columbia to the SAS Saskatoon or Saskatchewan Manitoba border is we are three herding provinces. I have 7,000 forestry workers uh, unemployed and looking for food banks, Rob, out in BC. Yeah. Uh, we know what your problems are in Calgary. Uh, we know that we've had our resources basically expropriated by the Trudeau government, and yet we haven't got a hero. And we've got a leader of a, of a Conservative Party that's circling on a carbon tax and not walking in a pride parade. That, to me, tells me that he says he's doing this for the base. That's not the base. The base, are, the base is me. The base are the forestry workers out, your oil and gas workers out. I can't transition workers anywhere across the West because there's nowhere to take workers to. So where was Andrew Shear then? And that's when I said it was enough and I wanted out of this relationship with the leader mm. and that we needed, to count, we needed to solve this. But I was willing to give him until the first week of January because the one thing Andrew has got going for him that other leaders didn't is that he's a supremely nice guy. And I think he was able to rag the puck on that exit date a lot longer than someone else would have been able to because people genuinely like him. And it never feels good having to go out against a guy that you personally like and you admire his characteristics. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, I, I've met him a couple of times. He, he seems like a genuinely nice guy, but I, I have heard that from people who know him better, that, that, that he really is, that he's just a decent guy, good family guy, yeah. and, and you're right. And I, I suspect there are a lot of people who may kind of feel sorry for him in a way. Well, it's hard. Yeah, I feel sorry for him. I mean, Jill and, and Andrew are a great couple. I mean, they're just down to earth. They're the kind of parents everybody wants to have. Um, they're the guy that they're the couple that you want living on your street. Uh, you know, charity comes first. Uh, you know, it's all these things that we're taught to to be. They're they're just exceptionally good human beings, and unfortunately, exceptionally good human beings don't always 
blend well with political life at that level. And uh, so it took me a lot longer to be publicly critical of Andrew. I was always very careful, as I think most of my colleagues, especially Western conservatives, we didn't, we may have felt white hot anger, but it was really directed at the fact that we're frustrated on this, this, this going, toing and froing on pipelines and promises that are never met. And we really need a conservative leader that's not going to take for granted our vote. And I think he did to a large degree. Um, the anger that's coming out of Toronto is something completely different. And and so I think a lot of us out West took our time being more publicly critical of him and we're, our knives weren't as sharp. Uh, but by, I would say for me, by about two weeks ago, and I noticed that there was no conversation or communication coming from the leader's office for oil and gas workers, miners, or forestry workers, which is the, which is my wheelhouse of interest politically and also professionally, I threw my hands up and said, okay, you know, I'm done. We need to have a leadership. Well, and I wonder too, I mean, off of that then, I mean, is is there going to be a perception from some in Toronto or in the East that, okay, look, you you know, we had a shot with a Western leader uh, that we don't need another Western leader. There's some great names uh, from out West here. I mean, Ron Ambrose, Michelle Rempel are two that come to mind, Mm -hmm. but how does it affect now the, the, uh, the next choice of the party? Well, I just had a conversation with a conservative and I reminded them as they were sort of beaking off about how the West is their albatross, you know, I reminded them that this party that they see today gave them uh, 12 years of conservative government in this country, gave them Jim Prentice, gave them Jim Flaherty, gave them Doug Ford to some degree, Brad Wall. Uh, The power of this conservative party, its roots began in the West. And that when we were coming along, their party was dangling by, you know, just a few threads. I mean, they barely had a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. I would ask them to respect the roots. We've had Western leaders like Mr. Harper that have been very successful. This isn't about region. And and I've reminded a couple of those Toronto people, because I don't want to turn this into Toronto versus us. Uh, I want to say to some of those consultants out there, you don't ever come out here. You don't really understand our issues. Don't lay Mr. Shear's leadership at our feet. What we need are solutions, and we are fiscally conservative, and most of us are socially liberal, however people want to define that. We're not these knuckle-draggers, so stop trying to paint us that way. We, are, we can be your best friends, and what we want to be out in the West are people that help you find solutions and, bring, and make sure there's unity in this party. But the type of language that's being has been used in the last three or four weeks by a very small group of people in Ontario has done a lot of damage. And so this leadership is going to get a lot, I think, more aggressive before it becomes uh, a question of can we get back together. We will always find unity. It's just a question of how long and how we play out this leadership. I remind people that leaderships are not as sexy and exciting as they think they are. They can be detrimental to a party's lifeblood. And I don't care where the candidates come from. I need to hear what I need to hear. And I need to see them understand how the West's economy is threaded tightly to the future of this country. Um, And we know there's storm clouds coming on the horizon. We know that the West is particularly uh, hurting much more than the rest of the country. But Ontario lost a chunk of manufacturing jobs, Rob. And in 2008, it was the oil and gas uh, sector that was able to assist the manufacturing sector in Ontario because we sent them, they, they, they got a lot of business from the oil and gas and mining sector out, out west here. So we don't have that opportunity now. And it's just like how I don't have the opportunity to send forestry workers to your oil patch in a jobs transition 
pensions fund because I haven't got an oil patch per se to send them to? These are the questions that this leader is going to have to show. And I think this next leader is going to have to, he doesn't have to be younger. He doesn't have to be all razzmatazz. And, and I actually think it'd be nice to see a woman lead the party, but I want to look at their, their CV, what they can bring to the party, the energy that they can bring to the party, because we need to build a party for 2030, not 2019, not 2020. Yeah, I, I think there's some really important points. I, I do think, and you, and you don't want to go in with any preset criteria for, for a leader, but I, I do agree with you about a female leader. I think the liberals, they sort of have a strategy. I mean, the way they ran against Andrew Scheer would probably be the, the way they would run against another male leader. I think they would really struggle uh, to, to run against a female leader. I think that would pose a lot of unique problems for them. Well, Trudeau had no problem shutting Ronna Ambrose down on the very issues that he said he ran on, uh, you know, feminism and equality. I mean, look at all the bills that Ronna and Michelle Rempel have tried to pass mm-hmm. to protect the Kurdish women, for example. Ronna did an exceptional job working on domestic violence in this country, uh, and she rarely got the acknowledgement for that. So I think Mr. Trudeau's arrogance is, is a problem for any leader, male or female. I think you're right, though, about something. I think if it's a male leader, they can't be too closely associated with uh, certain figures that Mr. Shear was. I think that it would, I, I actually think the next leader is coming outside of caucus. Um, male or female. I know there's uh, one or two candidates or potential candidates that I'm looking at that are not in caucus that would be great. But I think as my friend and colleague Lisa Rate said this morning, you know, it's great that, okay, we've moved past the leadership question now. There's no more, nothing left to talk about. It's on. But who on the benches is capable of taking over the party. Now, Rob, as you know, when Mr. Harper was at his, was at the height of his popularity, you could look at anyone on those front benches, whether it was Jim Prentice, uh, Jim Flaherty, even Tony Clement at the time, James Moore, and any one of those people, including Lisa Raitt, could have taken over the party. We have a problem. We haven't grown talent. And, and, I, and I've said to people when they're talking about Andrew Scheer, Andrew Scheer's not the only problem. Leader, leader is leader is leader. It's fine. But Let's look at where the party's gone since uh, Mr. Harper left the, the job as leader. We haven't grown. We haven't raised our talent up, whether they're strategists or, or MPs, uh, moving them towards the, the closer to the front benches. We, we haven't shared the power outside of the leader's office, which, as you know, Rob, inevitably grows talent. We haven't done a lot of outreach. We haven't really changed our... our we, it's funny. I think Mr. Harper's policies were more progressive than Mr. Shear's policies, or at least the... The 2015 campaign was more progressive than our 2019 campaign. And with that, you're not getting uh, a a new crop of voters supporting us. So there's more questions than just Andrew's leadership or who's going to run the party. It's going to be about can the party, the the executive and the members come together to develop a flesh out like a a platform and have a leader that, that matches that. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, Lisa, we got to leave it there. Always appreciate uh, the conversation, and thanks for the insight here today. Thank you so much for having me today. Merry Christmas. All right, to you as well. There you go, Elise Mills, a conservative political analyst, senior associate with the Sussex Strategy Group. Obviously, we'll continue to follow the story here this afternoon of the aftermath of the big political news today in Canada. Andrew Scheer is stepping down as Conservative Party leader. Some more reaction and analysis of that through the afternoon. Got a few other things I want to get to. I want to have a conversation right now, but obviously a crucially important issue. Resource development and also the question of First Nation involvement. 
And and certainly, as we've seen with with recent court cases, when it comes to adequately consulting uh, with with First Nations, that's crucial, right? In in recognizing their concern, uh, but also in helping create opportunities and partnerships. And I think on that point, we're, we're really at a precipice here. And I, I think we've got a great opportunity if we're prepared to seize it. Now, when it comes to uh, Trans Mountain, for example, I, I think we're getting closer uh, to possible First Nation ownership, or at least owning a stake in this project. Uh, the Alberta government has also created a Crown Corporation to provide assistance uh, to First Nations who are looking to um, get involved in these kinds of economic opportunities. Uh, so there, there is the potential there for that win-win. There was an interesting piece this week in the Financial Post, sort of expanding on that. That we've accepted that it's important to give First Nations the opportunity to say no, but that it's also important to give First Nations the opportunity to say yes. You can read that piece. uh, It's up at uh, financialpost.com. But joining us to talk more about it is Dale Swampy, who's president of the National Coalition of Chiefs, a member of the Samson Cree Nation. Mr. Swampy, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, do you feel, though, uh, that, that we are moving in the right direction when it comes to genuine kind of win-win partnerships between industry and, and First Nations? Yeah, I think we've, um, we've reached a position where industry sees the, <clears throat> the, um, the opportunity of getting involved with First Nation communities as, as an asset rather than uh, what we uh, used to call an externality. In uh, project develop- development, something that uh, they never saw as necessary, something they they overlook at uh, certain times, and uh, something that we couldn't participate in unless we actually t- took a concerted effort to uh, to be involved. And uh, now they're looking for partners. Uh, now they want to partner with the communities, and the communities are open to doing this. I, I haven't seen a community that hasn't has not mm-hmm. or hasn't refused to be able to participate fully in business and employment opportunities with major projects. And that's the message we want as a national coalition of chiefs to uh, spread across this country that uh, the majority of people, a large majority of people want uh, prosperity. You want to get out of poverty. They don't want to uh, sit beside uh, rich kids, celebrities and helicopters. That brings us nothing. Yeah. And Uh, mm -hmm. it's frustrating to see a, a, a person who's person of the year in, in Time magazine getting so much coverage and uh, we're starving to get our message out there. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Now, part of what prompted your, your piece in the Financial Post this week, there's a bill uh, that's now been introduced in the B.C. legislature requires B.C. to bring its laws into line with the provisions of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So how does that fit in with, with this conversation and, and the importance of, above all, addressing poverty, on-reserve poverty? Well, I think it's, um, uh, first of all, i got to support the comments that were made um, after the legislation was passed by some of the chiefs in the B.C. region, I think they, they're generally concerned with uh, the issues, concerns they have with environmental protection and so forth, and so and so are we. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to be the uh, individuals or groups that are being, uh, you know, asked by the environmentalists to stop projects. We want to participate in the economy, and we, we think that the projects are not going to be stopped, and they're going to go forward. We don't want to lose our opportunity and doing that and we don't want to see this UNDRIP being weaponized as 
know, a form of legislation that will help the environmentalists through uh, our First Nation people to uh, stop everything, stop all developments, and that's not what we're all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly when it comes to, to that UN declaration, there there seems to be a lot of emphasis on on giving First Nations, giving Indigenous peoples the right to to say no to projects. But there, there doesn't seem to be as much emphasis on giving First Nations the opportunity to say yes to development. Right, and I think I think we have to look at the other side of the story. There are a lot of First Nations who want, who want to be the uh, communities that start. Organizations that start projects rather than uh, comply with or try to participate in these projects, and you're seeing that a lot more these days, especially with LNG Canada going through the amount of uh, First Nations uh, communities that have um, supported it. And I think you're going to see a lot more First Nations coming forward, like uh, uh, Lax Kalams and uh, their chief, as well as Calvin Helene and Eagle Spirit Energy. You know, yeah. other other groups that are going to initiate you know, projects for um, Northern Access Road for the Old well, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and UNDRIP is, is, is going to do nothing for us except, um, you know, slow things down. And we're hoping that um, the, the real essence of UNDRIP is to give us consideration, uh, to give us a step up on being able to develop our own projects, to participate in projects, and to get ourselves out of... Um, out of poverty, because mm-hmm. that's a real crisis, and I, I think that's far more important than um, than anything the uh, UNDRIP legislation is going to offer us. And I think a lot of what uh, UNDRIP has, has stated is already uh, rights and title that, that we already have. I think it's a little bit redundant, and what concerns me the most of all is the ambiguity, the um, the, the, fact that the the advent of legal action going, um, being able to occur because of the legislation. That concerns me more than anything else. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the Eagle Spear Pipeline Project, um, and, and we've spoken with Calvin and Lee before as well, and it's really interesting what they're talking about doing. Uh, what, what poses a big problem for that project would be the um, Bill C-48, which is now law, the West Coast Tanker Ban. And, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, just when we think maybe Ottawa has, has learned the lesson of meaningful Indigenous consultation, here we have a West Coast Tanker Ban that involved no indigenous consultation and, and a, a law now that, that blocks potentially this this real unique opportunity for a First Nations-led project. That's right. And, um, you know, we're we're supporting Lax Kalams and um, a lot of the other north um, western communities, coastal communities that are, you know, um, looking at legal action to, uh, to stop this tanker ban from continuing and... We support that because the only way we're going to get our, our product to the West Coast is, is to be able to get it through uh, a port that is uh, the safest, we think, and the most accessible to uh, Asia, to the Asian market. And so there are communities we know of that are um, you know, well-versed and well-informed about the situation and are looking towards uh, you know, financing uh, legal action against the government to uh, overturn this legislation and we think with the, uh, the you know the swing and the and the conservative um, votes this year, uh, them getting the popular vote uh, as well as uh, more um, you know government involvement. So I think uh, 
we have a chance in, in the next year, hopefully before the next election, to uh, to swing that uh, legislation back to you know, being something more feasible. Yeah. What are you hearing on Trans Mountain? How close are we to, to seeing maybe uh, even a, a bid submitted to, to get perhaps majority ownership even, or at least a, a First Nations ownership stake in that project? Oh, I think it's going to be done. It's, uh, it's something that uh, the government wants. It's something um, the proponents want. It's something that uh, First Nations along the line wants. There are several groups meeting. We support uh, Project Reconciliation, Iron Coalition. You know, we... Um, we're, we're trying to communicate with as many BC First Nations as we can. We think the project's going to get built. We uh, started the Indigenous Strong Program, which is a uh, program of um, uh, recruitment of oil and gas Indigenous workers who are going to support us in our support for PMX. So we'll be out there um, in rallies and so forth supporting what, uh, what, uh, what TMX is going to do, and we're confident it's going to get built. And All we right. think... Uh, um, majority of First Nations along the right of way are going to sign on to be owners of the, of the uh, project. All right. Well, much more at uh, coalitionofchiefs.cn. As mentioned, your piece up at financialpost.com this week. Uh, Dale Swampy, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you, Rob. All the best to you. Uh, that is Dale Swampy. He is president of the National Coalition of Chiefs, coalitionofchiefs.ca. And as mentioned, his piece uh, this week in the Financial Post, Undrip says First Nations can say no to development, but we also need to be able to say yes. Really interesting look at what should be the overriding concern here. If we're talking about First Nations rights. We're talking about having a, a voice for First Nations. That it shouldn't just be about being able to block projects, as he says, ultimately. It, it really needs to be about addressing poverty. He says the overriding goal of all public policies should be to defeat on-reserve poverty. Resource development offers the most practical and achievable path to creating economic development and business and employment opportunities for those living on reserve, especially for communities located in rural and remote regions of Canada. I want to revisit an issue that, that certainly for a time was really domin- uh, dominating the national discourse in this country. It's, it's dropped off the, the radar a little bit, but uh, that, that's not because the problem has been fixed. Far from it. The, the issue of irregular slash illegal migration into Canada. Individuals walking across the border from the U.S. into Canada and claiming asylum. Now, of course, given our safe third country agreement with the United States, someone who was in the United States would not be eligible to apply for uh, asylum status in Canada. They would be turned away at a border crossing, but anyone setting foot on Canadian soil still has that opportunity. So, Certainly, we've seen a spike in the numbers as a result, an increase in the number of asylum claims as a result, an increased cost in processing those claims, and in the meantime, uh, providing housing and support to those who are waiting an answer on their asylum claim. But how did we get to this point? You know, there there are a lot of narratives uh, around this and and what is perceived to have caused the problem. A new study from the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, though, uh, sheds some much-needed light on all of this. It's called End of the Roxham Road, Seeking Coherence on Canada's Border Migration Compact. Now, joining us uh, to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Christian uh, Luprecht, a Monk Senior Fellow with the uh, McDonald-Laurier Institute, uh, also uh, with the uh, School of Pub- uh, Policy Studies at Queen's University. Christian, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Good afternoon. 
Uh, so in terms of how we got to this point or what, what caused this problem in the first place, and it's an interesting part of your study because there's kind of this, this narrative that, well, Donald Trump came in, he made a bunch of changes to, to immigration and refugee laws, and then that created this problem. But is there a lot more to it than that? Yeah, I think for any complex public policy problem, there's always a temptation to uh, look for a simple answer. The problem with these simple answers is that they also tend to be either wrong or they lead us to the wrong types of policy conclusions. And so this is partially what uh, what this conversation is about, trying to make sure that we actually have a more informed discussion and we understand that this is a complex, as we say in social sciences, a multivariate problem that has domestic, um, uh, there's domestic dimensions to this in Canada, changes that we've made to our own policies, there's changes in U.S. policy uh, to this, uh, and there's international migratory dynamics, everything from the globalization in human smuggling to the challenges around uh, civil conflict and whatnot around the world. And so uh, we need to understand how these all combine to incentivize certain individuals to make the trip to Canada uh, and to make the trip in ways that are, uh, that are effectively trying to bypass our regular refugee system. Right. And and so the, the safe third country agreement makes it more challenging, obviously, for someone to come to Canada and make a refugee claim. But how many of the people who are in the United States are in the United States because they are trying to get to Canada? So let's just understand one dimension about the safe third country agreement, um, that under international law, refugees don't have a right to shop for the country in which they would like to seek refugee protection, but rather uh, the obligation under international law is for refugees to seek protection in the first safe country. And by and large, that tends to be the United States. Uh, by definition, it is the United States for anybody who is crossing by land. Um, under Canadian law, there are certain exceptions to that, uh, but that seems to be one fundamental misunderstanding. Um, and what people deem safe or not is not ultimately up for individuals in Canada to judge. Um, there are international standards as to what constitutes a safe country, and the United States continues to qualify um, under those uh, under those dimensions. Now, the assumption is that most of the people who are coming from the United States is uh, tends to be individuals who are subject to the policy changes by the Trump administration, in particular people who are under what's known temporary protected status. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, folks uh, from Haiti after the earthquake and from so, uh, some Central American countries, there's about 300,000 or so people of that uh, um, that are likely to, to have already have their temporary protected status rescinded uh, or are likely to have it rescinded in the very near future. Now, it turns out that relatively few of those actually make their way to Canada, and that 9 out of 10 of those who do make their way to Canada um, are subsequently rejected for refugee claim here. Um, and so that the people who are already in the United States are a very small part of a much broader conversation about who's crossing into Canada irregularly and the motivations for them to cross. Right. But I mean, a lot of that was true in 2015 or 2016, but clearly we saw a big spike starting in 2017. Right, and what we see here is a uh, is, is several factors coming together. So let's understand first who are the people who are crossing. About two-thirds of the people are crossing irregularly, and we have the numbers for those in the study. So this is, we, we can track all the data for this, are people who entered the United States legally um, on a visa or as a tourist and then subsequently made their way to Canada. Some of those are visa overstays in the United States, so they entered legally and then subsequently became illegal by overstay. 
getting their visa. But by and large, these are people who intended to make their way to Canada. They got a U.S. visa usually because there are just many more U.S. missions in the world than Canadian missions. Um, and some of them also, I guess, reckon that they wouldn't qualify for a visa to Canada to begin with. Uh, then there's a smaller portion of individuals who can't get a visa to Canada or the United States, but that can avail themselves of visa-free, tra- visa-free travel to, the, uh, to Central and South America. And so they fly into uh, one of the countries where they can enter and then make their way uh, up through Central America and through the United States to Canada. So th- that's, that's primarily the individuals that, uh, that tend to be crossing. So it is, is people who are intentionally seeking to enter Canada. Um, the other dimension to this is that Canada has instituted several policies that have made it much more difficult to get to Canada uh, by air or by sea if you don't have the appropriate travel documents. So uh, everything from biometric passports to entry and exit data sharing with the United States that now allows us to ascertain individuals who are, for instance, visa overstays in the United States, um, uh, So and, and a host of other changes uh, that we've made. Think of the enhanced travel authorization for anybody who doesn't have a Canadian or U.S. passport and who's looking to travel to Canada. Um, All those have meant that if you can't enter the country, uh, it's much more difficult to enter the country irregularly with, for instance, um, uh, forged or otherwise uh, invalid travel documents, and it's easier for Canadian authorities to determine that you're inadmissible to Canada, you'll have a greater incentive to uh, enter Canada Canada by land and to do so between ports of entry because you would be refused entry or would not have the opportunity to make a refugee claim if you entered at a port of entry. In terms of why it's important to address this, I mean, there, there were those who say, well, I mean, in terms of sheer numbers, this, this isn't a, a, a big deal. The system can handle all of this, but it does put pressure on the system. Obviously, it has an impact on public perception when it comes to, to migration or immigration or refugees in particular. So why, why do you think it's, it's important that we address this? Right, so I think you point out the two dimensions of, of, of this conversation. One is that, sure, in absolute numbers, the numbers are relatively small. And so people say, you know, Canada should just be generous and should just let them enter. But, of course, we need to think about we're a rule-of-law country, and in a democracy, as citizens, we elect our government to make authoritative laws, and sovereign governments are identified by the fact they're then able to enforce those laws. And so under, under the current situation, there's an argument that the, the, the immigration and refugee regime that we have in place in Canada is being undermined by these patterns. And it's being undermined because it calls into question the fundamental social contract on which our immigration system is premised, which is first and foremost um, uh, good uh, administration management of Canadian borders. So a sense that the state has control of their borders and who and what crosses, that individuals who uh, come to Canada have a good prospect for political, social, economic uh, integration to the country and that they will continue to uh, contribute to the prosperity of Canada. And so I think when those assumptions are being called into question um, because there's no longer the sense that Canada is able to uh, apply the relatively successful 
migration regime, so immigration, refugees, and, and, and all those put together, uh, that we have established in recent decades and that has contributed to the success of diversity in Canada um, to the extent that we have seen relative to other countries where diversity is becoming a liability here it is very much as you know considered an asset that's because we've established the social contract and that's ultimately what's being called into question here and so we need to find a way to I think reassert Canadian sovereignty ability to apply the rule of law uh, at the border and reassert confidence and the integrity of both border management and the immigration refugee system while at the same time ensuring that we adhere to both domestic law and our obligations under international law, and that's the objective of my study. So what steps can Canada take? So first and foremost, to um, I think we need to look at all the options when we review the Safe Third Country Agreement. So there's those who would like to suspend the agreement altogether. Uh, sure, that's one option. It would, by all estimates, probably triple uh, the number of uh, refugee claims um, in uh, coming into Canada. So if we think that the system is overwhelmed now, uh, then that is bound to completely overwhelm the system. So that's one option. The other is uh, to apply the Safe Third Country Agreement all along the border. The government is currently proposing to do that, but in effect, the amendments that they're trying to negotiate with uh, the United States uh, would allow Canadian authorities to drive refugees to a port of entry and essentially quasi-instantly um, deport them and force them to make a claim in the United States. Um, and I'm not sure that this would be entirely conform, uh, conform with our uh, domestic and constitutional obligations. So what I'm proposing is to reinstitute a provision that was suspended in 2002 um, after uh, the Safe Third Country Agreement was signed. That is known as the Direct Back Provision in our Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, which means that individuals could effectively file a refugee claim in Canada from the United States, and they can wait out the, uh, their claim in the United States, um, and if their claim is successful, then they can enter Canada. Now, why would the United States agree to that? I think for two reasons. One is there is uh, an addendum uh, to the Safe Third Country Agreement that was never implemented where Canada had already agreed it would take a certain number, uh, about 200 in that addendum, uh, of people who had filed for refugee status in the United States and had been accepted successfully in the United States. So the United States could give us some of their refugees. And the Trump regime, uh, the Trump administration is trying to implement an international regime that we've already seen emerge in Europe and in Australia, where in effect people lodge their refugee claims from outside the sovereign territory of those states that is then adjudicated and if it is deemed valid then people are allowed to enter and so it would allow the Trump administration to reinforce the international regime that they are effectively trying to promote anyway. There's a number of other smaller things we can do. We can to some extent harmonize our visa conditions. We don't want to do that entirely uh, for a number of reasons that I list, but there's opportunity to collaborate a lot more closely for instance for in terms of countries that are uh, where citizens might be deemed inadmissible. There are several countries where you can enter the United States uh, without a visa, but not Canada, and vice versa. There's about seven countries in the world in each case, so we could, we could coordinate on those. We also need much better data so that we can have decision makers make more informed decisions, and this is part of what the study tries to demonstrate, that we can actually pull together a much better picture of what is happening at the border, but we need to look at so many different data sources, some of which are extremely cumbersome to collect 
reflect, uh, as I demonstrate in the study, that uh, we need to make an effort to uh, be more transparent about what is actually happening. But I also suspect there may not be an appetite in some camps of government to have that transparency precisely so that we can continue to promote uh, a narrative that somehow it is uh, simply and solely the Trump administration's fault that all these irregular migrants are coming to Canada. All right, very interesting. People can read the study for themselves. It's up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Christian, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right, that is Christian Luperacti. He's among senior fellow of the McDonald laurier Institute, author of this study, also professor of the Royal Military College. He's director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University and is Fulbright Research Chair of Canada-U.S. Relations at the Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies. So busy guy. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.